0: How many people are ready for the Word today? And uh, just want to welcome all of our folks joining us online as well. We're so glad to have you with us. Uh, we're kicking off a new series today. We're going to be in this series for the next three weeks. Uh, I'm really excited about this. We're going to kind of build from today and next week and then on Easter Sunday, the, series, the three-week series will conclude on Easter and I'm calling this the final week, the final week. And obviously, we're getting close to you know, Resurrection Sunday and everything that happened at the end of Jesus's earthly life. And I thought it would be really good and appropriate this year uh, to take some extended time for the three weeks and really just build upon all of the events. Well, I shouldn't say that. We're not going to cover all the events. You can't do that. But a, a number of important events that happen throughout that last week of Jesus' life leading up to the cross. Because there's a really awesome just story and thread that goes through that kind of final setting of the clock when Jesus comes in to Jerusalem for Passover for the final time. Uh, And it kind of builds and it's progressive, if you will. I feel a little bit like John's closing words of his gospel. I I feel that in play here when he says, uh, these are the things that we can account for, That Jesus did while he was here, but if all the miracles and the wonders and the things that he did were attempted to be written down, I would suppose to say that even the earth could not contain all the books that would be written. That's pretty, that's amazing, isn't it? That's a powerful statement. And so really, we're going to kind of go through and look at a bunch of things over this final week leading up, but we're only scratching the surface, just keep that in mind, of everything that Jesus did Uh, during his earthly ministry, but we're calling this the final week, and what I want to do is I want to try to, so it sets in for us, kind of build through the days of that final week, so we'll start with the Saturday before, all right? Now, let me make just kind of a little statement here, and I understand that we may have some some real good, like devoted scholars here in the room, uh, and there are... There are different views on exact timing of where certain events take place. Okay, I get that. Now, that wasn't Tuesday. That was Wednesday. Or that wasn't Wednesday. That was Tuesday, right? Let me just tell you one of the reasons why it's difficult to be exact on certain dates and certain events when you study this. Um, There are three different calendars that kind of come into play When we approach and study the word, there's the Jewish calendar, and the way that the Jewish calendar works is the day begins at sundown. That's different than what we're used to, right? Just imagine, like, when the sun goes down tonight, then it's Monday, right? That's that's how it works with the Jewish calendar. Now, in an area of Israel at this time, and for many centuries, uh, called Galilee, the Galilean area... The, the Galilean Jews used a different calendar. Their day actually began at sunrise. So for them, Monday wouldn't begin until tomorrow morning when the sun came up. And then we're used to, in modern day and has been for centuries, what's called the Gregorian calendar, which means the day starts at midnight. One day ends and one day starts. Are you with me? So you could see how you could start this, and believe me, I have for hours and hours and hours been sitting there with the calendars, with the timelines, and all four Gospels and Bibles spread out because I'm interested in that stuff, and I've studied, and there's still things that are like, I can't quite be sure which day that was. So whether you're right brain or left brain, right brains are like the real analytical or the real creative and all that, left brains are the real analytical, or did I get that backwards? I got that backwards. Anyway, you know, so like if you're the one side of the brain, this is, this is really important to you. And so I promise I'm going to do as good of a job as I can. But if you're the other side, you're like, I don't really care what you happen, you know. Uh, and then if you're not left brain or right brain, I guess you're just in the space in between. So I don't know what that one means. But anyway, <laughs> I want you to think about this as we set the stage. This is the final week. Jesus has been uh, on the earth for approximately 33 years in his earthly life. We used to see God come into the flesh in the incarnation. He walked as a man, fully clothed in uh, flesh, but fully deity. And uh, and so a part of his ministry is that he is um, he's pretty mobile through the region of Israel. He spends a lot of his time of ministry in the northern region up by the Sea of Galilee and uh, a lot of those areas up there, and then he'll kind of sort of ebb and flow back and forth and a little bit of desert wilderness around, but most of the ministry was up in the northern region of Galilee or down in the southern region of the city of Jerusalem, and so Jesus was used to making these treks with his disciples back and forth, right? He'd kind of come into the city of Jerusalem. He'd minister there. They were always there for Passover each year, Uh, and so there is this back and forth movement. Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem for this Passover, and he is fully aware that this is his final one. Now think about that for a second. Because again, we have to appreciate that he's fully God but fully man. And the Bible says that you need to know this, that he felt everything and every kind of temptation, every kind of thought he experienced as we experience, yet he was without sin. right? And so just think about this. He's coming in, he knows this is the last time. This is the last one for me. If maybe you're... Got a major moment in your life, a big vacation, a big event, something like that, and, and you've had that thought before, or just picture that, knowing, like, this is the last time I'm ever going to do this again. That's a lot, isn't it? And Jesus is coming in, and he's feeling the full weight of all of that. The clock is ticking, and I'm getting ready to fulfill what I came here to accomplish. It's getting ready to, to be completed. And so he's coming into the city, um, coming back out of the region of Galilee into Jerusalem. And we're going to begin in John chapter 12. So I have three different events today that I want to take you through that happened during this final week and flip over to John chapter 12. Just hold your place for a second. And the first one is, and these are terms that we kind of use to describe the events. Some of these terms don't show up necessarily in scripture this way, but the... The first event is called we call it the anointing at Bethany. All right, the anointing at Bethany. Bethany was a town, not even really a city, is just a little area. It was slightly east of Jerusalem, so it wasn't right in the city, but it was close. It was a good lodging place. There were a, there was a family in Bethany that were particularly close to Jesus, very near and dear friends. It was sisters by the name of Mary and Martha, and they had a brother by the name of Lazarus. And so when Jesus would come into the town, into Jerusalem, this is men, very often where he would stay. This was his lodging place. You know, any of you have, when you go to certain places out of town, uh, you have friends or family that's like, when you go there, they're like, absolutely not, you're not staying in a hotel, you're staying with me. You're going to be my guest, right? Or we have family and friends, when they come into town they were like absolutely not i will unacceptable you're not staying in a hotel you are staying with me and then you have those people who's like hey i know i have some great hotels that i can recommend for you you know and if somebody says that to you don't take offense you know um, but this is that kind of relationship for jesus in fact it's pretty obvious to me when you study the scriptures about the final week that even though jesus is in jerusalem through that entire time Most of the days, it looks like he's going back out of the city and then staying in Bethany with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, okay? So they're really, really dear friends. And there's this important event that happens in what we're going to call Saturday, all right? Saturday before, and we call it the anointing at Bethany, and we're going to read about it. Let's start in chapter 12 of John, verse 1, and then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany... Where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. Sorry, but I just have to stop for a second. I can never read that verse publicly and not at least preach a little bit on that. Lazarus, who was dead, who you know is not dead anymore. Because Jesus raised him from the dead. Not many days before that, actually. And he's the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Not a lot of people have that testimony, (laughs) but he did. And the Pharisees were so consumed by their, their search for power and their greed for manipulation as the religious elite. They were so overcome by that that this event, that was miraculous and amazing, the dude's alive, he was dead, he's back. They're like, this is not good. This is not good. They're gonna believe in Jesus now. And they conspired to kill not only Jesus, but they also wanted to kill Lazarus too. They wanted to get rid of the witness. So that tells me that when people are so consumed by greed and self Uh, promotion and advancement, there are really no ends to the links that they will go to to try to preserve their power. The Bible says they're very concerned lest the Romans come and remove their place of power and authority from them. So they're overcome by that. But you know, Lazarus is raised from the dead, and eventually, of course, we know this to be true, he ended up dying and going to be with the Lord. So the Bible says it's appointed unto all men to die once. He had (laughs) two. And that only speaks of the physical death, right? There are two deaths. The first is the physical death that we will all come face to face with one day, the end of our mortality. But the Bible is so encouraging in the fact that it says for those who are in Christ who know Jesus, you'll escape the second death which is permanent separation from the presence of God for all of eternity in the lake of fire, a place of eternal torment. So can we just appreciate for a minute, right, that all of us will experience the first death, but we rejoice those of us who are in Christ knowing we will not experience the second death. And that's the worst one, right? That's far worse than the first. And so um, Lazarus is just kind of a a walking miracle. Let's go on. Verse 2. It says, they made Jesus a supper and Martha served, but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him, and then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Can kind I of pause for a moment and Just take in a breath and just imagine the entire place, is this fragrance is emitted everywhere. You know, sometimes we spray cologne or perfume. If you get close to somebody, they can smell it. But if you overdo it, they can smell it from a little ways away, right? The entire room of the house is filled. And this speaks of the extravagant outpouring of the oil in this act of worship by Mary when she just dispenses it all over Jesus' feet and then washes his feet with her hair with this very costly oil. Then it says in verse four, one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? It's about a year's worth of wages there. She just dumped all that out on Jesus' feet. And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And he had the money box, and he used to take what was in it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So a few things I want to bring to your attention in this event. Let's talk about the oil for a second. We know it's very costly. It's a year's worth of wages. It's extravagant. This speaks to an interesting part of Mary that I, I really appreciate when I study the Scriptures is that she seemed to have an understanding that a lot of the disciples didn't even have. The Bible says in the, the book of Matthew, if you read about this account, the disciples were indignant. So, so Judas's motivation is different than the disciples. He's self-seeking and self-serving. He's trying to look out for himself. He wants that money in the money box. We know not because he cares about the poor. Right, and and this is what's interesting. When people are self-seeking and self-advancing, uh, they will manipulate any situation and fabricate it to try to support the the picture that they want to see. And actually, he's willing to fight for it. He's not just kind of sitting around and I hope I don't get discovered. Like he's trying to fight. For this fabrication that he's created oh we got to worry about the poor you don't care about the poor you care about yourself but you're trying to like fight for this this fantasy this fabrication of reality that you've just created people do that don't they and that's what Judas is doing but the disciples their intentions a little bit different they're not self-seeking they really do care about the poor they have a misunderstanding of the act that Mary just actually partook of Mary's the one, and Jesus says, leave her alone, she's got this right. She's the one that actually has something figured out, right? What does she have figured out? She seems to have an understanding of the um, price, of the, uh, uh, the value, right, that is available in her time in the presence of Jesus at his feet. Oh, there's nothing that this isn't worth. <laughs> I'll, I'll pour out my whole savings for this, for this moment the feet of the Savior. She gets it. She is willing to exchange what, what the world standards would consider immense value. She says, no, that's nothing. That means nothing compared to the, to the value that you can't put a price on right here. And Jesus says, she actually gets it. And when he says to the, to the disciples and the people who are listening, he says, yeah, the poor you have with you always so is really... Penetrating for me because, especially being you know, a minister of the gospel, a pastor, you're you're seeking to serve and help people. Uh, ministry never stops; it never goes away. The needs of people never end, right? And you can just you can exhaust yourself, wearing yourself out, serving if you're not getting refreshed and getting uh, re-energized. Because listen, when we serve, all of us for God in our lives of pursuing our calling it would be right to say we are pursuing something that is supernatural. You can live your own life and your own agenda and do it in your own strength, or you can live God's calling out for your life, and that is a supernatural pursuit. So the reason I say that is it requires supernatural energy. It requires a supernatural grace that we can only obtain by being in the presence of God. Praise the Lord, where it says in the book of Acts, in times of the presence of the Lord, we will get refreshed. Right, and so Jesus is saying, "Well, I don't want you to kill yourself. I want you to I want you to serve me and do what I'm calling you to do. But I want you to make sure you're getting refreshed and getting reenergized and getting your cup filled so it's overflowing. So you're not trying to do something supernatural with a depleted cup all the time. Does it make sense? So we see that there's kind of these different people in the story. And then the last thing I want to say about this, the oil, uh, oil was used for a couple of different. Things, uh, ceremonial things. One was burial. When someone would die, they would anoint their body with oil to help with the stench to prepare the body because they had a lot of ceremonial things they did in the process of, of burial and a funeral. And so oil was used. So when oil was being poured on a body, preparing it for burial, often there was mourning that was happening because a death had occurred. Oil was also used. To anoint kings and priests. So there's this other thing that goes on when oil is used, which is celebration. Now I want you to get this. Because Jesus specifically said in these verses, very important because he inserted this, he says, She's doing this for my burial. Remember that? We just read that. He says, She's putting this on. She doesn't know she's doing that. Like there's something prophetic happening here. He says, She's anointing my body for burial. But you see both pictures of the use of oil in play here because the oil is being used to anoint the body that's getting ready to be buried. But the oil oil, is also symbolizing the fact that in Jesus' burial, there's going to be a victory. There's going to be a celebration. Does that make sense? And he says just a little bit later in the book of John, this is why I know this is applied here, he says in verses 24 and 25, uh, it's kind of like a parable that he tells, he says when a grain of wheat, if it's just, kept by itself a seed, then it doesn't do anything. It's, if it stays isolated and separated, but when the seed is buried and the seed dies, that's when the plant can actually grow. And it's not just the plant that grows and bears fruit. It produces a harvest because seeds come off of that and it produces other crops. And then there's a harvest that proceeds from there. So here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, through my death, my body going into the ground, that body dying, something greater is going to grow out. It's going to be a resurrection of a defeating of the grave, but it's not just going to be my resurrection, I'm going first, but there's going to be a harvest of saints who will know a resurrection after death, who will not be defeated by the grave as well. So there is victory in his death, amen? i just ask you this question before we move on to point two. Speaking of a seed has to die so things can grow up and then a harvest can come out of that. Um, are there things in your life that God is calling you to, things in your life that are noble and that are purposeful that you would be going after that you might look at and say, I don't feel like they're growing right now. I don't feel like they're producing fruit like, like they should. Now, there could be other reasons for that happening than what I'm about to say, but it could be this too, and I just want you to consider this, that could it be that it's not growing and producing a harvest the way that God wants it to and the way he wants to bless it because it actually hasn't been buried yet? And what I mean by that is you haven't surrendered it and given full control over to Jesus instead of actually having some control on your own that you're still maintaining. Does that make sense? So in order for something to grow... There has to be a death, right? That's what he's, and, and so if we want God's will and plans and things to flourish in our lives, we have to let it all go, bury it, surrender it entirely to him and get our hands off and say, no, I don't have part control, I give you all control. And that's, a, that's something we have to address and think about and pray about, amen? Amen. All right, second event that happens, and we're going to call this one Sunday. The next day, uh, we refer to as the triumphal entry triumphal entry. And so this is the day after the anointing at Bethany where Jesus comes riding into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, which fulfilled a prophecy hundreds of years earlier by the prophet Zechariah. It said, behold, your Savior will come to you, your king, lowly and riding on a donkey. Jesus sent the disciples into the city and said, hey, go find a donkey, loose it, and bring it back to me. And then he rode in on the donkey and uh, try to picture this for a second. So you have the city of Jerusalem, which is on a mountain, it's Mount Zion over here. And then you have the Mount of Olives right alongside of it, just to the east, okay, so these two hills, uh, and they're separated by this valley in between. It's called the Kidron Valley. And down here on the one hill in the valley is where the Garden of Gethsemane is. And so Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Olives, and he's descending. Oh, hallelujah. I just see that in my mind. He's descending down the Mount of Olives on this trail, kind of winding through the Garden of Gethsemane, and he comes and circles back around, and then he comes back up uh, uh, the mountain of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and then he makes his way up into the city. And when he does that, there are people who are all around, who are praising and yelling and screaming and celebrating about what has happened, happening. And actually, let's just dive into the story and read about that. This is in John 12, verse 12. It says, the next day, okay, day after the anointing of Bethany, the next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took branches of palm trees, which means victory. They would throw those on the road when kings would come in from a, from a military campaign, and they were successful. Palm branches would get thrown all over. They would celebrate. It was to imply a victory has been won. Um, so the branches of palm trees went out to meet him, and then they cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which is a fulfillment of uh, prophecy in the book of Psalms, actually. I believe Psalms 118. Hosanna means you're our Savior or save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. They're calling him King, okay? Keep that in mind. And then Jesus, when he had found a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Again, that's Zechariah 9.9 being fulfilled. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him, And that he had done these things, or that they had done these things to him. And so, he's coming in, there's palm branches, they're yelling Savior, they're yelling King. um, But they have a different picture of what's going on than what he does. And that's what we need to get out of this. Uh, Jesus is very much, in fact, a king. And he's getting ready to establish the beginning part of the new covenant in his kingdom that is forever through his work but that's not the kind of king that they're looking for. They're celebrating because here's what they expect. They expect this man, this Jesus that's coming in to save them from the Romans. They want the Romans out of their city. Understandable, right? They want, they want their land, they want their peace, they want to govern themselves and not be oppressed. Understandable. But in their mind, this idea of a king saving them from the Romans It's the greatest measure of what they can see possible. Does that make sense? This is like the loftiest thought that they have, free us from the Romans. And they want Jesus to do it the way they want him to do it. They're very bound to this king being the king the way they want him to. (laughs) Think about that. I can only suppose that a lot of these people are like, hey, uh, I want to keep living in my house I want to keep all my relationships, I want to keep my job, I want to keep my hobbies, I want to keep my weeknight shows, I want all my stuff to stay the same, Jesus, but I want you to save us from the Romans, that's what you need to do, and then everything's going to be good for me, my life will be perfect. You understand what's happening? They're writing a script. They think they got it figured out, and the whole message of this entire... Our deal is that we never really know what we need. Jesus knows what we need. And he's getting ready to bring them what they need, but they don't see that it's what they need because they're fixed on what they think that they need. And they miss the whole thing. In fact, so much so that it says Jesus weeps over the city when he comes in because he's feeling the weight of that. He knows that's what's happening. He says to the people he's, as he's weeping for them, he says, you didn't even know that your hour was upon you. You didn't even know that I was here to save you, and you missed it because you wanted it and needed it to be done a certain way. We pray and we seek Jesus' intervention in our lives often. I hope you do. We do, right? But many times, we haven't really let go of the script. In order for God to really move in our lives the way I think we, most of us really do want him to, there has to be this place of surrender we've reached where we're really willing to let Jesus flip our lives upside down. If everything changed because he wanted it to, then it would improve us. And we have to be willing to let our lives just be interrupted. (laughs) Jesus, come in. Ooh, not like that. (laughs) Whoa, hold on a second. Back up, you know, give me some time. Think about this. No, like, I'll come. He says, I'll come. I'm here. I'm ready. But he has to weep for them because these are the same people, the same people that just a few days later, and it pierces my heart when I think about this, these people yelling, Hosanna, Jesus the King, save us, glory to God. Throwing palm branches. These are the same people a few days later who are going to be yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Because by the time they see him in the Roman authorities and in chains and shackles and being beaten and scourged and in prison, they're like, oh, he's not going to save us now. He must not be the king. And then they turn away from him. They start yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Oh, how fickle the human nature can be sometimes. Hmm. But if they would have been willing to let go of their own script and plans, we want you to be our king, and we want you to be our king the way you want to be our king, then they would have experienced what some of them actually did, which was the salvation of the Lord. But we gotta be willing to let our lives get flipped upside down. I'll give you a really good example of this. Um, when Katie and I first met, going on almost 20 years, right? We've been, we'll have been we be married this year, it'll be 19 years uh, of marriage. We're reaching this kind of interesting timeline switch where we will almost have been together soon uh, longer than we weren't together in our lives. You know, and that flips over. And so when, when we first met, She was a pretty impressive young lady, still is, but she was pretty impressive then too. She had a lot going on for herself. Um, She was a homeowner at a young age. She had some rental and real estate properties. She was a store manager of a pretty successful uh, optical franchise throughout the Midwest. And so she, I mean, she kind of had a plan going on. She had things that she was pursuing. She's ambitious. You know, she had um, sort of a script, I guess you could say. And uh, little did she know one day that God begins to move and he brings in this very handsome, ambitious, charming, did I mention handsome, young man. And and she just falls in love and her life just gets flipped upside down. The whole thing she was about just changed. But can we all agree that God's plan was better than her plan was at the time for herself and it all worked out? There's a similar story like that. We don't have time for it, but when Pastor Mike was leading the church over in Fenton and then this guy comes along and becomes a pastor on staff, Uh, we'll get into that one another day. (laughs) But And I'll leave you with this last thought before we move on. Jesus could have saved him from the Romans. Easy, could have did that, right? Jesus could save us from the things that we're going through that we want him to get us out of. And sometimes he does. But if he doesn't, the way we want him to, this is the question. Can we trust that he's actually doing something greater? Because that's what he was doing. I I could save you from the Romans. I got a bigger plan. I got a much bigger plan. You know, this whole thing of separation by the curse of sin, I'm getting ready to annihilate that thing. That's a bigger deal. And so can we trust that God is always up to bigger things than we can even see, know, or pray, or ask for? Amen. Uh, Number three, the last one here I want to talk about today is the betrayal. The betrayal. And so if Saturday was the anointing at Bethany, I'm... uh, And then Sunday would have been the triumphal entry. That's why we call it Palm Sunday, by the way. That will be next weekend. That's why we refer to that day, the Sunday before Easter as Palm Sunday, the palm branches. And so the betrayal doesn't exactly have one day because it was a series of events. And that's important for where I'm going to go to wrap this point up in a minute. But um, there was this moment where Judas went over and conspired with the Pharisees. Right? The Bible says that early on, Satan had already put it in his heart. So there was a seed that got planted somewhere. Satan had put it in his heart to betray him. So there was a conspiracy starting earlier in the week, probably Tuesday or Wednesday. But then on the night of the Last Supper, which was say is Thursday, uh, and then the arrest that evening. So at the night of the Last Supper, Jesus says, somebody's going to betray me here. Actually, I talked a little bit about that in communion. And he said, it's the one whom will take the bread after I've dipped it in the cup. And it says that Judas took the bread, and he left. And listen to this. At that moment, it says, and then Satan entered Judas. Now, you get that? So it said Satan had put it into his heart earlier to betray him. And then it said when Judas took the cup, it, it sealed the deal. He said, and then Satan entered Judas. And then he comes into the garden, and he gives the kiss of betrayal, which is where he kisses Jesus on the cheek. To alert the Roman uh, authorities and the, the Hebrew, I should say the Jewish authorities, probably were the ones that came, uh, to arrest him and to alert them that this the one he kissed on the cheek would be Jesus. So the betrayal, to be betrayed, because it says that he was betrayed, one would betray him, and the, the Greek word for that, there's two words, pero didomi, para means alongside or close to, didomi means to betray or to give up or to abandon and turn over. And so this wasn't just any betrayal. This was a betrayal of someone very close to him, someone right alongside of him. And I wonder if you've ever felt that before, the sting of a betrayal like that. If you have, you just need to know that our Savior, he felt that to the nth degree, and he knows how you feel he wants to be there for you in that too. Judas betrays him because Judas is after his own agenda. Let me just say this about what I would call a Judas spirit, a spirit of betrayal. Um, Judas is looking out for Judas. He's trying to advance himself. He goes and trades Jesus' life for 30 pieces of silver, betrays him for that. Um, when people are in a spirit of betrayal, where they're willing to do that, they're they're so self-seeking and so self-advancing that they're consumed by it. And here's what I really think. I don't think that Satan was really that interested in Judas. I, I actually don't. I don't think that was a big part of Satan's focus. I think Satan found a weak link. He was interested in getting to Jesus. And so I just say it this way, because I believe this, I think that there are times in our lives where Satan tries to get to people close to us because he wants to get to us. And I just want you to be aware of this. I want you to be wise and discerning. Here's some things that you can see. When Judas comes and gives the kiss to Jesus, he's trying to, he's looking one way to the authorities and to the soldiers. He's alerting them to which one Jesus is, but he's still trying to save face and make Jesus think he's kissing him on the cheek. When people are in a spirit of betrayal, it's very common that they will seem duplicitous in their actions and in their behavior. They will try to appear one way to a certain group of people and another way to another group of people. Does that make sense? So just as a child of God, be discerning in in things like that. Also, he, he trades this betrayal for 30 pieces of silver, which is very interesting because in the Exodus, 30 pieces of silver represented the price of a slave's life. When a slave was maimed or gored to the point of death and someone else's animal was responsible for that, the person that was responsible had to recompense the uh, owner of the servant 30 pieces of silver. That was considered to be the price of that life. And so what Judas is trying to do is to get a payday. He's trying to get a a prize to maybe go celebrate and do something good for himself and his life. But what he's actually done unknowingly is he just sold himself for the price of a slave into eternal bondage. Because that same 30 pieces of silver after Judas went and hung himself was the money that was used to buy the field that he was buried in. And so what that tells me is when, when people are trying to seek their own agenda and trying to pursue, and they think they're doing it for a prize, the cost of that prize is actually going to be their own destruction. It's not going to be their advancement. It's going to end up being their own destruction. And so um, the price was a, was a really big price that he had to pay. And then this last thing I want to mention about in this betrayal part of the story I've never preached on this before, and I felt very compelled to do this today. I really think that it's possible somebody needs to hear this. Many scholars, sorry, many scholars link this situation with Judas to what Jesus talks about in Matthew 12, which is the unforgivable sin. Or the unpardonable sin. It's a topic that a lot of people got really wrong. Okay? <clears throat> and they link this to the unforgivable sin. Because there is a moment. When Satan enters Judas. Where this thing is done. Judas' fate is sealed. And what I want you to get is that this wasn't just an instant action. This wasn't something that Judas just all of a sudden decided, oh, I'm going to do this, and he did this one act, and then all of a sudden this was unforgivable. The unforgivable sin is, and he says it's it's like blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is what's interesting, he also says that Uh, all of man's sins or blasphemies will be forgiven, even sins or blasphemies against the Son of Man, but not those against the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the active agent of God here in the earth, drawing us and wooing us to him. So here's what what I believe, okay? I believe that this is progressive, that Judas is demonstrating this. He's going through this act. Satan put a seed and got a foothold. Judas kept it around. He kept nurturing it. He kept keeping it around. he kept entertaining it. And it eventually escalated more and more and more to the point, and none of us can really know where a place in a person's heart would be, but there is a point where Judas's heart fully rejected and fully abandoned Jesus as his Lord. Does that make sense? So it's an escalation. It's a place of God's trying to draw us. He's trying to woo us. And we just keep pushing him away and keep pushing him away and keep pushing him away until eventually it's full and complete rejection. I will not accept. I reject and turn away. And there's this point where we could say that a person could reach that place where they have just now fully rejected. It's not that the grace is not available. The grace is still available. But they have fully chosen to resist and refuse it now. Here's why I say all of that, because over the centuries, many people have been tormented by this thought that I have committed the unforgivable sin, because what they associate with that, what they think is it's blasphemy against God. So if I got angry at God, if I yelled at God, if I got mad when my loved one died or some sort of tragedy happened and I yelled and screamed at God that I've cursed God, I've blasphemed God, and perhaps I've crossed the line that I can never go back from. For centuries, this thought has haunted people. And I want to tell you what I believe. I believe that is bad thinking, bad teaching if it's ever been taught, And I'm telling you that the unforgivable sin is not a moment of emotion and reaction. It's not a mistake we accidentally slip into. It's full rejection that's become progressive. And I say that because if God is still working in your heart and you still are convicted, to me, that is complete evidence that the Holy Spirit is still at work and you could not have possibly committed the unforgivable sin. And I think that I just felt that God really wanted somebody to hear that today because there's some kind of wrestle with somebody that they're going through that this is keeping you from the place that God wants you to be with him. And it's a place that the enemy is allowing, the enemy is creating and you're aligned that God has absolutely no intention of you being condemned by. Does that make sense? And so... What always astounds me is the thing with Judas, like, Jesus knew. (laughs) So when I say we have to be wise and discerning, I believe that. We have to make sure we're tuned in to what's going on and, and steer clear of, you know, people who have deceptive intentions and be wise about that. But here's the amazing part. Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, but he kept him around, kept him close. What does that mean? Here's what that means. Judas was out for Jesus' harm, being manipulated by Satan. But Jesus was fully secure in what was going on. He was not threatened or intimidated by that because the reality is what Satan was trying to use to bring his greatest blow to the Son of Man Was actually playing right into Jesus' hand the whole time. He was actually using it to achieve the greatest victory that would ever be achieved. I'm convinced if Satan would have known what was going to happen was going to happen, he'd have never messed with Judas in the first place. He tried to get to Jesus to kill him, and he killed him, but in doing so, Jesus rose from the grave and defeated death and ushered in a generation of saints who would now be able to be with God for all of eternity, not separated by sin. What the enemy was intending for harm was playing right into God's hand for a victory that he was setting the stage for. And so I'll close with this for you and I. Uh, We're gonna have enemies, sure, it's gonna happen. You go do a great work for God, you're gonna make them. Because the gospel, and it's, it's separating. It's like a sword, you know, it divides things. you got to be wise and discerning about what's going on around you. We must be. But be encouraged by this. You should not fear your enemies. You should not tremble before them. You should stand strong and you should stand firm. Because even when those attacks are being launched against you, you can stand firm and trust and know that whatever the enemy intends for your harm, God absolutely positively can and will turn it around for your good. The thing the enemy's trying to take you out with are the very things that God can use to bring a victory and a breakthrough in your life. We move forward, we move steady, we move strong, and we move confident. Attacks will come. But even in the attacks and the things that are coming against us, we can be safe, we can be secure, we can be in faith. God can use every single part of that that's going on. Those things that are meant for good against us, those things people mean for bad against us, doesn't matter. God is God. He's sovereign. He's that big. He can use it all for our good. Amen? Hallelujah. Would you just bow your heads and close your eyes? And I asked some of our prayer team to just kind of come down to the front as well and get in position. I want to ask you this as we close. What is the Holy Spirit saying to you today? What is he saying to you right now? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Maybe is he using the story of the anointing at Bethany to open your eyes or remind you that might need a little overhaul on what effectiveness in your calling really is. You need the proper rhythm of ministry and presence, of refreshing in your life, just trying to do it from a place of depletion. Your heart's right, but you're missing the fuel that you need to do the work on an empty tank? Is the Holy Spirit possibly using the triumphal entry to remind you or open your eyes to this idea that God's God all by himself? He doesn't need your help being God. He just needs your surrender. Will you give it to him? Is he possibly using the story of the betrayal today to encourage you because you're under an attack, all out attack. Walls are closing in. Anxiety is up and high. Stress is up. Starting to think that failure might be the outcome here. Might be you're doing it. God needs to remind you, oh no. (laughs) I got the enemy thing figured out too. If those attacks are happening right now, You just need to know that I I can use those for your good if you stay focused on me. You gotta keep trusting him. And then he can use those things. Maybe this story of the unpardonable sin is for you today. And you need to know that God has not condemned you, so do not condemn yourself. If you experience of conviction by the Holy Spirit that is evidence that God is still working in your life rejoice child of God rejoice that God still calls you his own hallelujah or maybe God is just using this whole thing this whole story this whole series of events and just open your eyes for the first time that he is the king. In fact, he's the king of kings. That there is none like him. He's beautiful. He's full of grace. He's full of love. He's all powerful, but he's all. He's a God worth trusting. He's a God worth putting your life in his hands. And maybe that's what you need to do today. For the first time, confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Surrender your heart to him. Ask him for forgiveness of any sin your life, fill you with his spirit, be saved and be born again, that his life would live inside of you. You have the assurance of your salvation, knowing that God has secured an eternal home for you in the highest heavens for all of eternity. Maybe you just kind of walked away from God in your past and you need to get back to walking with him. Maybe there has been some kind of evil led separation or condemnation that has been sown into your mind and heart keeping you from God you think you can't get back to him I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that those walls would be broken down right now the love of God would invade and flood your heart you can't understand his grace I can't understand his grace it's beyond comprehension but there is nothing that you have done wherever you are God is wooing you in this moment. He can't wash you clean of. I think for some people today, you need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. You need to fall in love with Jesus all over again. Because he's got a great future for you. And it would be a tragedy for you to remain separated from that. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, for all you're doing in this place. We give you honor and praise. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the victory. We thank you that you call us sons and daughters. We will pour out our oil at your feet. And it will be worth every bit of whatever it costs us. Thank you in Jesus' name, Amen. If you need prayer for anything today? I'd love to invite you to come down and see one of our prayer team members here who love you and encourage you before you go. The rest of us, let's stand to our feet. Let's just praise the Lord before we go.
1: All the earth will shout your praise. Hearts will cry will see great, are you Lord of the earth, all the earth will shout your praise, our hearts will cry, these bones will see great, are you Lord, come on, it's your breath in our love.
0: this morning hallelujah you know as we move forward kind of anticipate getting into our new space and everything God's doing I remind you that big part of what God has impressed on my heart that we see is altars full of people you know coming down and just just being ministered to and everything from healing to joy to just, I mean, you name it, all kinds of things being broken off of people. Um, and so we give this invitation for people to come down and get prayer. And, and I know, okay, that God could minister to you right where you are. And it's not that you have to step out of your chair for it to work. It's not the case. But I do believe very strongly that God is doing something. And it's not just here in our church. I, I think this is a part of the work in the body of Christ right now in our world and the kind of culture that we're in and everything, that God's doing a work where he's really looking for those who are unashamed of him. Does that make sense? That he's looking for those who will really be bold. It's not a hidden kind of faith. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And I just think there's something about kind of stepping out, being bold, you know, and and just when, you, when you're in need, look, that's what the church is here for. We want to minister. When there's a need, that need should be met, right? Uh, and just want to encourage you as we move forward to think and pray about this. When God's pulling at your heart and you feel like, I want to respond to that, uh, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Be bold. Be strong. Because I've seen this. It will, it will grow and kind of build your faith uh, in a way that few things can when you're willing to really step out there for God and just respond to whatever he's leading you to do. Amen? Amen. Awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to next week. I hope you're, looking, you're excited about the series that we're in the final week. I'm looking forward to Easter Sunday. It's going to be a great day. Go ahead and start inviting all your friends and family now that you want to get there. Tell them, I'm saving you a seat. Amen. Everybody have an awesome day. God bless you. God be with you everywhere you go.